is is it not a Kids Connect day today? Right. All right, kids, where are you guys at? <laughs> Raise up your hands. Okay, all right, put them down. How many of you have ever seen your parents do something crazy? All right. All right, parents, don't worry. I'm not going to have your kids tell these stories. Put your hands down. All right, instead, instead I'm going to tell you a story about uh, something my dad did that was crazy when I was a kid. Uh, he's not here, so I'm not going to tell you his name to keep it anonymous. Uh, but we uh, were leaving town on a vacation, right? And kids, you know that like when you're getting ready to leave town, it's, it's usually pretty stressful, pretty crazy. Your parents are trying to get everything packed, make sure they didn't forget anything, make sure all the lights are turned off in the house, get everybody in the car, have everybody go to the bathroom. And by the time you get in the car ready for vacation, right, everybody's happy and in a great mood, right? Sometimes there's a little frustration. So that's where we were. We were leaving town, headed out on vacation. And so we stopped for fast food at Hardee's, which was a Bad choice already, right? Hardee's is not that good. But we're going to Hardee's, and they had some sort of problem. This is, this is back in the day. This is before all your newfangled gadgets and devices. And so Hardee's had to use receipts to know what food you got. And so we go to the first window. My dad pays. We go to the second window. They say, our receipt printer isn't working. We have no idea what your order is. So my dad tells them what the order is, and then... Minutes, hours, days go by, and no food comes out, and something inside my father snapped. And the next thing I know, he's leaning out the window, banging on the drive through window, demanding for his money back. Right? These days, like that would end up on Facebook, on YouTube, like it would be everywhere. He would be on the news. It was crazy. And his birthday was on Friday, and I told that story to a big room full of people. <laughs> because the reason why that, that, that crazy event stands out so much in my mind is because it's, it's so different than who he is as a person. Like, that's, that's not how he acts. That's not how he behaves. That's not who he is. Uh, and the reason why I, I'm telling you the story is because we're going through the, these minor prophets, and uh, what we hear... In chapter after chapter and book after book, once we finally get out of Hosea, is, is bad news. Is that, you know, there's this God who's going who's gonna to punish his people for their sin. And if, if that was the only kind of story that was in the Bible, that would be really bad news for us. Right? If God was just all punishment all the time. If he was the kind of person that, that banged on drive-through windows, he wouldn't want, he wouldn't be somebody that we would want to be around. But the good news is that's not who our God is. Right? He's, a, he's a good father. He's a loving father. He's a gracious father. Even in the midst of all this announcement of judgment, there's also promises of grace. There's, there's hope of redemption. He's, he's going to bring his people back. And so kids, I would encourage you to go home and, and ask your parents about, about the good news they heard in this bad news passage. Ask them about, about who God is, not just in this, this, these you know, few chapters of Hosea, 
but, but in the story of God as a whole that we see in the Bible. Ask them to tell you more and more about who Jesus is and what he's done for us as his people. So let's, let's pray, and then we'll get into our passage this morning. Father, we thank you that you are a good and perfect father. You're, you're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That you continue to, to pour out grace and, and offer hope for your people when they reject you and rebel against you. We thank you that you, you don't just send punishment. That you also send salvation. So we pray that you would, you would use your word this morning. You would send your spirit to, to challenge us, to convict us, to, to, to stir our affections for, for who you are and what you've done for us. That uh, you would use this passage in Hosea to increase our understanding of the kind of God you are and, and how you love and care for your people. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So Hosea... 8 through 10. At this point, we're, we're halfway through um, the book of Hosea, and we're, we're still in book one of the Minor Prophets. But I promise the rest of the Minor Prophets will be faster. Uh, this morning, Daniel and I were talking over there, and I said, I think we made a mistake going through all the Minor Prophets. Like, this is, this, it, 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 it feels heavy week after week to be like, judgment is coming, judgment is coming, judgment is coming, um, with, with not really much light at the end of the tunnel. There's three books at the very end, there'll be a light at the end of the tunnel. But, but for now, we're, we're halfway through Hosea, and what we've seen thus far is we've seen God confronting Israel for their, their covenant breaking, for their, their sin, for their unfaithfulness. Uh, we've also seen him call them to repent and to announce judgment that's going to come if they don't repent. And, and we've seen them reject that call to repent, and so judgment is coming. But, but even though there's been this repeated refrain that judgment is coming, the, the judgment has been announced, uh, there are still uh, specific glimpses of hope along the way, that, that there's there, something good is going to come. He's still going to bring his people back. He's still going to restore them after the punishment falls. And so in the rest of the book, what we're going to see happen is this kind of conversation, this interchange between God and Hosea. He's going to speak for a bit, and then Hosea is going to speak for a bit, and it's going to flip back and forth and cover a few different topics. In today's passage, we're going through Hosea 8, 9, and 10, and what, what's going to happen here is that God is going to confront them for their trust in their own kind of strength. They, they think they're strong. They think they're prosperous. They think they have military might. They think they don't really have anything to worry about, and so God is going to confront their false hope hope, and their false sense of security. So the first thing we see is God speaking in uh, verses 1 through 14 of chapter 8. So follow along with me on the slides or in your, your Bibles. It says, set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I've spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel. A craftsman made it. It is not God. 
The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces, for they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads, it shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up, already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. And the king and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. So the Lord here... is letting the people know that it's, it's, it's time to sound the alarms. The, the vultures are circling. Judgment is about to fall because they have rejected him. They've rebelled against the law. They've broken the covenants. They, they have not repented like he's called them to. And so they, they pretend like they know God, but they don't do what is right. And so he's confronting them for their sins, and he's telling them that judgment is coming. He says that their leaders are not the Lord leaders. They, they've set up these other people in power, but it's not the people that he wants in power. They've given themselves over to idolatry. Because of that, his, his anger, he says, burns against them. He's going to break their idols to pieces. They, they sow the wind. They're reaping the whirlwind. They're getting the consequence of their actions. And the result is going to be famine. Their, their fields aren't going to produce anything. And even if it did produce something, somebody else would eat it. Israel is going to be swallowed up. It says they're a useless vessel among the nations. They're just kind of passed around. They went up to Assyria, they paid Assyria to protect them, but ultimately that's going to backfire because Assyria are the ones that are going to take them out. Their altars have become a place of sin. It says even if God was to give them 10,000 copies of his law, it wouldn't do anything. They they wouldn't listen. Uh, God is going to remember their iniquity. He's going to punish them. It says they'll return to Egypt. I don't think this is literally saying they're going to go back to Egypt. Instead, in the Old Testament, we see throughout it that, that God bringing his people out of Egypt is this grand symbol of how he was redeemed them, who they are as people. It's kind of where they found their identity. Now that's going to be reversed in judgment. They're, they're kind of going back to Egypt um, because Israel, it says, has, has forgot his maker They've built palaces. Judah has built fortified cities, but the Lord is going to tear them all down. So they have this strength, they think. They take comfort in the fact that they've paid off Assyria. But but all of this is going to backfire as God pours out judgment on them. Now at the beginning of chapter 9, Hosea starts talking. He says, Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples. For you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled. For their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord." What will you do on the day of the appointed festival, on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. The day of punishment hath come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. 
The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God. Yet a fowler's snare is on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. So Hosea here is telling them not, not to rejoice, right? They're, they're celebrating because they think we're good. Like we've, we've got all we need. We're strong. We've got this, this pal of Siri who's going to help us out. But he's saying, don't, don't rejoice. Like punishment is coming. Like you're, you're not who you think you are. You're not safe like you think you are. You've trusted in false gods and hope that they're going to provide grain and wine. But ultimately those things are going to fail. They're not going to feed them like they think they are. The people aren't going to remain in the land. Instead, they're going to be carted off to Assyria. And so they'll no longer be in Israel to appoint or worship God in the appointed ways. Verse 7 says that the days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. It also says the prophet is a fool. The, the, the man of the spirit is, is mad. And like this, this appears to have been like a, a familiar taunt that was thrown out against the prophets. They're like, this guy's, this guy's a crazy person. Like he's, he's mad. Uh, he's a fool. But Hosea here turns this around on the people and says that the prophet's a fool because of your great iniquity, because of your great hatred. Like he's saying, like, you're driving me crazy with all of your nonsense. Like how, how could they be responding to this call to repentance? How could they be responding to the announcement of judgment uh, by just continuing in their sin? Right? The prophets, it says, they're not, they're not crazy. Instead, they're, they're watchmen of Israel because the people have deeply corrupted themselves. So God is going to remember their iniquity. He's going to punish their sins. And Hosea is just kind of reiterating that. Don't, don't worship. Don't exalt because of the situation that you're in. And we switch back to the Lord speaking in verse 10. He says, Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree, in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give them? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Every evil thing of theirs is in Gilgal. There I begin to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their disease, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. So even though the Lord's speaking here, there's a couple moments where Hosea kind of interjects, one in prayer and one in kind of conclusion at the end. Um, but this, this section starts with, with the Lord remembering Israel. Uh, like how, how he found them in the wilderness. He's found them like, like grapes in the wilderness, like the first fruit on the fig tree uh, in its first season. So these are, these are good things. These are happy things. Israel was a source of, of, of joy and, and delight for the Lord. But then the people went to Baal Peor. This is a, a place in Moab. It's like 12 miles northeast of the Dead Sea. This is where they went to, to worship Baal, to, to prostitute themselves to idols. It says they consecrated themselves to shame. They became detestable like the thing they loved. So like not long after leaving Egypt, the people turn to idols, to worship idol. Um, there's a reference back to Numbers 25. Like what happens there is, is Balaam comes to curse Israel, but, he, but he's not able to. 
Instead, what happens is the people bring a curse down on themselves, right? They don't need outside help. They can do it themselves. Uh, what happened is some of the Israelite men, they went out to Baal, Baal Peor to uh, have relationships with cult prostitutes. And a plague begins in Israel. And it doesn't stop until Phineas takes a spear and runs it through a man and a woman who are, uh, you know, doing things, uh, cult prostitute things. And this, this, is what he's, this is what he's reminding them of. He's reminding them, like, this, this is your history. This is who you are as people. God found you in the wilderness as a delight. You were a source of joy, but, but almost immediately after that, you became this other thing. And I think the point of bringing it up is, is, is twofold. Number one, he's reminding the people that their idolatry began even before they got to the land, right? It's not, it's not something that happened. They, they can't blame it on other nations coming into Israel. They can't blame it on anything outside of themselves. This, this, is, this is who they were. They had this sinful inclination from the beginning. And number two, it reminds them of how serious they should take their sin, Right? That, that, that story from Numbers reminded them of, of the decisive action that needed to be taken to root sin out of themselves. Because of their idolatry, because this is who they are, they're, they're not going to prosper in the land anymore. God says that there's going to be no, no birth, no pregnancy, no conceptions. He says even if they, they were able to conceive and bring up children, those children would die. He's making it clear that, that he is the one who is doing this punishment, right? And the reason why that matters is because they often went to Baal because they thought that that would give them fertility. And he's saying, no, I'm the one that's going to cut off your fertility. This is, this is punishment. And in verse 14, Hosea kind of interjects with, with this prayer, but his prayer is asking God to punish the people. He's, he's asking God to carry out this judgment. He says, give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. He's asking God to do what he said he's going to do, to punish his people. In verse 15, Gilgal is held out as a city that's kind of representative of who they've become as people. Like every example of their evil is there. This is the place that, that Saul was made king in the Old Testament, where the people kind of started heading a direction different than what God wanted for them. So because of their wickedness, he says he's going to drive them out of the land. He'll love them no more. All of their leaders, all their princes are, are, are rebels. So Ephraim stricken, their root is dried up, their children will be put to death. And Hosea concludes, my God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nation. So that's bad news, right? He, he's going to pour out judgment. The judgment is going to be severe. Chapter 10, we switch back to Hosea in the first eight verses. It says, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words. With empty oaths, they make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Beth-Avon. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests, those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as a tribute to the great king. Israel, or Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. 
The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, Fall on us. So God had, had brought Israel to the land. He had set them up to, to prosper, to, to flourish as his people in the land. But, but the more they prospered, the more they turned away from God. As their, their fruit increased, they, they built more altars to worship idols. As the country improved, they improved their, their pillars to, to give more to idolatry. So their, their heart has been revealed as, as false. And now, Hosea says they're going to bear their guilt. The Lord is going to break down the altars. He's going to destroy the pillars. He's going to pour out judgment on them. They, they don't have a king. They don't fear the Lord. They don't see what a king could do for them, even though God had promised that one day this king would come who would redeem his people. They say, like, we, don't, we, don't, we don't need that. We have our altars. We have our pillars. So they make empty oaths. They utter mere words, and judgment springs up around them. It says they tremble before an idol. They mourn for it. The same people who rejoiced over this idol now see it carried off to Assyria. It's shown to be powerless, and they are put to shame because of their idolatry. It says that Samaria's king is going to perish like a twig on the face of the waters. Right? If you think about a stick that's just on a, on a river, on a creek, it, it's just floating down the stream. Right? The stick has no control over where it's going. Right, the, the, the river determines that. What, what this is talking about here is that uh, Israel's king has no control over these events. God is the one who's orchestrating history. He is the one who is carrying these things out. The events that are about to take place are because of him, not because of their king. It says that the high places will be destroyed. Thorns and thistles are going to overgrow the altars. The people, because of the severity of the judgment against them, are going to call out to the mountains and the hills to fall on them and in the punishment. Chapter 10 ends with the Lord speaking to his people. He says, From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them, and nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow, Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies, because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall rise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be destroyed, as Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle. Mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At the dawn, or at dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. So this last section kind of pulls everything together uh, and, and, and speaks very clearly about what's coming. Gibeah was a place in Israel's history of, of depravity and civil war. And the argument here is that, that things really haven't changed since then. That's still who they are, and God is going to discipline them for that. Nations are going to gather against them. They're going to be bound up for their double iniquity, for their, their turning away from God and turning to idols. They're going to bear the yoke. Uh, and he, he, he says that she must, Ephraim, must seek the Lord so that he will come and rain righteousness upon them. 
What's, what's amazing about this, right? We've, we've seen this cycle as we've gone through Hosea. He said, like, judgment is going to come unless you repent. The people don't repent. So he says, judgment's going to come unless you repent. The people don't repent. There's been this, this window for grace to come all along the way. Right? There have been these, these glimpses, these, these promises that God is still willing to redeem his people, even at this point. Right? Even after call after call after call from him has been rejected, he still gives them like one last chance. Right? He calls them to, to sow righteousness for themselves. But they don't. They reject it. They've plowed iniquity and they've reaped injustice. It says they've eaten the fruit of their lies. They've trusted in their own ways and in their, their military power. And so because of that, war is coming. Their fortresses are going to be destroyed. It says, as Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle. It's, it's not clear what this is referring to, but it, it must have been particularly awful because the description we have here is that, that mothers were dashed to pieces with their children. This is not, not a situation that you want to be in. And the Lord says that this is what's going to be done to, to Bethel, to, to the house of God, to where Israel is. At dawn, their king is going to be cut off. Uh, he's going to die when the battle begins. So what can we take away from this passage? Right? We see this, this pretty stark, and in some places very shocking, uh, announcement of judgment from God to his people. Uh, and, and really, like a lot of the minor prophets are going to be, this is, this is mostly bad news. Right? There's, there's a small glimpse in there of, of the potential for salvation. But the people reject it, and, and judgment is coming. And because of it, they're, they're not going to avoid it. And... And some of it is, is really, really harsh. Right? It's, it's, it's surprising. He says he's going to send fire upon their cities. There'll be no birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if there was, they'd be put to death. He says their beloved children will be put to death. They're going to be punished so severely that they'll long for mountains and hills to, to fall on them to end their suffering. This is This is harsh. I think there's two things to, to remember or to, to think about when we consider this. The first is that there, there's a very real sense here that God is giving the people exactly what they're asking for. Right? right? He's, he's told them very clearly, this is what's going to happen if you continue on this path. This is what's going to happen if you don't repent. This is what's going to happen if you keep worshiping idols. This is what's going to happen if you trust in Assyria or your military power or, you know, your, your threshing floors or, or anything other than him. If they continue to look to things other than him, this is the punishment that he's going to pour out on them. Like, this is what he said. You know, like, we, we love, and, and for good reason, we love the promises of God in scripture and to, to cling to them because we know that we follow a God and love a God and serve a God who, who keeps his promises. But the reality is, is that God keeps all of his word, right? Not just the good promises, but also the bad promises, the, the, the warnings, the, the, the threats of punishment, right? He, he has said, if you don't do this, then this is what's going to happen. And this is what happens for his people. The second thing that we need to, to realize here is that this punishment follows what we've already seen in Hosea. Right? Way back in Hosea 2, 
when, when Hosea kind of introduces everything he's about to say, he announces the fact that punishment is coming, that judgment is coming, that's going to be poured out on his people. But there, the punishment is described in a way that, that shows that it's, it's redemptive and protective for God's people. It's, it's ultimately meant to be restorative. He said that, that God said that he would hedge up Israel's way with, with thorns and build a wall against her so that she can't find her other lovers. So eventually she returns to him. And so this punishment, it's not just meant to like, you know, be harsh for God's people. It's not just meant to, to you know, pour out judgment on them. It's also meant to bring them back to him, to, to be redemptive in scope and bring the people back into relationship with God. The reality is that all along the way through the Old Testament, we see God pour out judgment on his people in dif- at different points. And every single time, there is a portion of the people that are saved through the judgment. Right? We see Noah in the flood as God pours out judgment on the earth. There's this one family that's, that's saved through the midst of the judgment. Even here, all along the way, there's this, this window, this glimpse that some people are going to put their hope in God. Some people are going to repent. Some people are going to turn back. Some people are going to worship him instead of worship idols. And they're going to be saved through the midst of this judgment. Right? And we know ultimately... The reality is that this punishment that God pours out on Israel, it's, it's not going to break the cycle of, of sin and rebellion. Right? Even if the people come back to the land, they're, they're still going to fall short. They're still going to need something else. They still need that, that promised redeemer, that king who's going to come, right? so that God can put his own beloved child to death on behalf of his people. He's going to send the one who's finally going to break this cycle of sin and rebellion. And because of Jesus, we who hear this punishment don't have to fear this kind of punishment. We don't have to worry that we're ever going to be in a situation where God is pouring out judgment on us so that we have to instead prefer that hills or mountains will fall on us. Because we know exactly what God has told us in his word. That's that if we put our hope, if we put our trust in Jesus, then he takes our punishment. He stands in our place. He bears God's wrath against us and our sin. He shares his his new kind of life with us when we put our faith in him. And so if you're here this morning and you've trusted in Christ for salvation, then you can hear about this kind of judgment and know that it's how God has punished his people in the past. But the reality is that Christ has taken your punishment for you. If you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Jesus, then you're still under judgment. I know that that sounds harsh, and we don't like to talk that way. But that's the reality of God's word. He offers us salvation if we repent. And if we don't repent, then we don't get salvation. And so if you're here this morning, I would encourage you to talk to somebody before you leave about what it looks like to trust in Jesus, what it looks like to, to turn from your sin and turn to God. For the rest of us, I would encourage you to, as you're preparing your heart to take the Lord's Supper, to spend some time just dwelling on the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for you, that that he has taken your punishment so that we we don't have to fear that someday some prophet is going to come and say, like, you have done all of these things wrong. You fell short in all these ways. And so because of that, you know, God's going to send this nation to conquer yours. We don't have to live like that, even though we've got that list of wrongs we've done. We can bring those to the cross. We can bring those to Jesus and find forgiveness in him. Let's pray.